villains, I say to you now, knock off all that evil! While getting podcasted, you must not cry at all. I'm Torin Atkinson. Why are you killing yourself, Cambodia? Why are you killing yourself, Cambodia? Why are you killing yourself, Cambodia? I'm Joe Fulgham. Pol Pot, the most evil alliteration since Lex Luthor. I'm Kevin Leeson, and this is Caustic Soda. Mustelid family. Whoa, whoa. I thought we were researching pot. Similar to skunks. I thought we were researching pot. Pot? No, we're researching the guy who invented pot stickers. Pol Pot. Oh. Oh. Wait, I thought Pol Pot invented potpourri. Uh, Actually, we're doing an episode on our ongoing series on evil dudes in history, and we've chosen Cambodian communist leader Pol Pot. I'm so outraged by this guy that I actually got a cold in response, which is why my <laughs> He throat, made you sick. Why He made me physically ill. Oh, Look, wow. I mean, and his real name wasn't Pol Pot, either. His real name was Saloth Sar. Saloth Sar. So they evidently really... Sounds like a Star Wars character from Return <laughs> of the Jedi or later. They evidently like their alliteration in uh, Cambodia, right? Because he's either Saloth Sar or Pol Pot. Well, Ooh. small sample size, but yeah. Saloth Sar so, would be a good bounty hunter. So where did Pol Pot come from then? How did he get that name? Uh, he took that name actually uh, from the French phrase politique potentielle, potential politics, which was a very extreme form of communism hmm. that uh, he was exposed to while going to school in France. So why we'll is there so much French in Cambodia? Because uh, they were a French colony for like 150 years or something. And how long was that before Pol Pot's time? Uh, I think they gained independence in 1953. Okay. And uh, Pol Pot took over in 1975. There was a, a prince that was in charge before that. So they went from being a French colony to being a monarchy. Instead of some French dude telling you what to do. It was some Cambodian dude telling you what to the do. The results are much the same. 1953 to 1975 was a time of conflict in Cambodia. Where is Cambodia? Uh, Southeast Asia. Okay. kind of sandwiched between Thailand and Vietnam. And Laos. And the capital of Cambodia is Phnom Penh. I think it's pronounced Phnom Penh. Phnom Penh. Spelt Phnom Penh, but had nothing to do with the movie phenomenon. Too bad. It <laughs> should have been. Right? It would have been better. He could have used those powers to save lives, like of the millions of people. Oh, I'm getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah, as far as I know, Travolta's never been to Cambodia. He was in that movie phenomenon, right? Yeah, yeah, that was him. Yeah, okay. That, that, I got blank stares for a second. I... Pol Pot, early life, born in Cambodia in the 20s. Not 100% sure what his actual birth year was. Somewhere between 1920 and 1925. There's varying reports. At what age did he go crazy? Maybe from birth. Who knows, <laughs> right? Uh, he, he spent, as a young child, like in his like preteen years, he spent a year uh, studying at a Buddhist monastery of all places. Oh, that would uh, make him calm and You'd think, right? Very and, zen. Yeah. And, uh, and then he spent six years at a Catholic school. So maybe, maybe <laughs> yeah, that's where they, a conflict. they turned him. The most interesting part about his early education was in 1948, in his early 20s, he got a scholarship to study at the École Française de Radioélectricité, radio, the School of Radioelectricity in Paris. So he moved to Gay Paris in 1948 to study radioelectricity. Oh. Hmm. Dude, what do you think? He's going to become a radio repairman? Uh, what do you think he, he was his focus? Radio electricity. Pro- propaganda? Well, it ends up he kind of like he falls in with these French communists while he's there. 
you know, when you go to school, you always join a club or something. Uh, sure. So uh, he ended up falling in with these radical extremist communists while he's now, there. Now, were they part of the actual club system in the <laughs> in the school, or were they just an informal gathering of kooks? I think it was an informal gathering of kooks. All right. And uh, this is obviously where he was exposed to this uh, politique potentiel that he eventually took his name from. Okay. Uh, and he actually, there he also met, he met his first wife, Kiyu Ponery who was the first ever Cambodian woman to earn a baccalaureate degree. Okay. And while he was there, he became very involved, even to the degree of writing a pamphlet entitled Monarchy or Democracy, where he states, the monarchy is a vile pustule living on the blood and sweat of the peasants. I agree with that. You know, I mean, he's, uh, he's getting his, uh, his inflammatory rhetoric down. Pat, vile pustule. Sure. I didn't read that much about it. Was it that bad? I don't know. But I can imagine there'd be evil monarchies and good monarchies. Yeah, I mean, like when you entitle it monarchy or democracy, but then talk about how the monarchy is like holding the peasant down and you're like writing it while organizing with communists. It's sort of like you're learning that kind of doublespeak, right? It's like, oh, the will of the people and blah, blah, blah. Let's overthrow the monarchy and institute another dictatorship. Joe, would you say yeah. that the British monarchy is a vile pustule? It's a pustule. I don't know if I'd say vile. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> they're, 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 they're like not evil, but they're pretty useless. But think of all the money that they're... Like, they're kind of like an appendix. Eating up. Y yeah, it's true. <laughs> the monarchy is like an appendix. It's like an appendix. Just get rid of it. We don't need it. I'm going to TM that just in case I want to put that on a t-shirt later. Okay. So uh, in 1951, Pol Pot is uh, forced to return to Cambodia because he failed all of his exams for his third year in a row. Nice. Party school. That's yeah. Three strikes and you're out, buddy. <laughs> it was either he was too busy partying or too busy proselytizing, one or the other, and uh, had to uh, return to his uh, his father's farm, uh, middle-class kind of landowner type. There were no courses in uh, proselytizing communism at the radio electricity school? Yeah, you'd think he should have gone to like a school full of philosophy or yeah. something like that. He probably would have excelled. You don't fit in here. Get I out. I don't know. You fail at a university, that's a really good time to change over to being a politician. <laughs> <laughs> You're not good at anything else. You're going to start failing your bar exam, right? Yeah. So uh, so he returned in 1951 and then uh, started organizing for communists in Cambodia itself. And he sort of was like the fringe radical. Like the Khmer Rouge, who weren't even referred to as the Khmer Rouge by at this stage of the game, but the organization, like all the leadership and whatever, they were really considered the fringiest of the fringe, right? Like they were the guys who were talking about a state needs to live in a, in a state of constant revolution. In fact, in the 60s, in the early 60s, he even traveled to China to witness the cultural revolution firsthand. And he thought that was really cool. Mm. He met with Mao Zedong and uh, opened up a relationship that actually lasted like throughout his political career. The Chinese were always keen to back his regime with weapons and money and food and supplies now, in retrospect, we're all taught that Cultural Revolution is maybe one of the most heinous pogroms like in human history, and Pol Pot thought that this was the street map by which he needed to like, construct his own particular brand of communism. So this Khmer Rouge, this yes. is just a communist faction? Yeah, like there are actually other communist factions, but none nearly so radical as, uh, as the Khmer Rouge. In fact, Khmer refers to, that's what Cambodians call themselves. Oh, okay. So it basically means red Cambodians. Yeah. And uh, because he was so radical and he was always talking about the violent overthrow of the government and all the rest of that stuff, he was constantly under threat of assassination and arrest and whatever. So he actually runs into the mountains and that becomes kind of his base for the rest of his political career. He kind of hangs out with sort of like the aboriginal Cambodians, like he calls them the original Khmers. Hmm. Basically bush people who've never interacted, they're all totally inbred, never interact with anybody else. Inbred? And, so he's hanging out with the hillbillies? He's hanging out with, with Cambodian hillbillies, and he's impressed by how self-sufficient they are, that they never go to market, they don't buy anything, right. they just live off the land, okay. and that's the way they've lived for thousands of years. And he's like, this is an agrarian society that works. This could work on a countrywide level. If everyone was a hillbilly, the if world would be a better place. If was a hillbilly, we'd all be happier people. <laughs> gotcha. Now, does anybody else see a flaw in this theory? Well, there's no there? dental plan. <laughs> that's true. So throughout the 60s, he's building his base. And what the U.S. started doing in the early to mid-60s was carpet bombing along the border of Cambodia and Vietnam. Why would they do that? Well, the theory was, was that Vietnamese, the Viet Cong, had bases of operation that they were launching into Vietnam to fight against the Americans from Cambodia. So the Americans needed to bomb Cambodia 
to drive the Vietnamese out of their little hidey holes. Where was that legal? Take safe haven. It was not legal oh. in the strictest sense probably of the word. On, probably on either side of that whole thing. It probably wasn't legal for the Vietnamese army to be in there. And it wasn't legal for America to then go bomb them in somebody else's country. This is kind of the WMD thing. Hmm. They're like, Nixon and Kissinger were like, we got to bomb Cambodia. And they're like, you're not allowed to bomb Cambodia. They're not doing anything wrong. It's like the Vietnamese are in there. They've got bases. Hmm. Right. No, you can't do it. And they just went, fuck it. We're going to do it anyway. Yeah. Because uh, in Nixa's famous David Frost interview, if the president does it, it's not a, strictly illegal, right? <laughs> also, better to ask for forgiveness than permission. Yeah, precisely. So they ended up dropping, all told, 539,129 tons of ordnance were dropped on Cambodia uh, from the 60s into the early 70s. Wow. And that tonnage was about three and a half times more than all the bombs that were dropped on Japan during the entirety of the Second World War. So Japan got about 153,000 tons. Cambodia got 539,000 tons. Well, Japan should count as lucky stars then. Yeah, I got guess off they, easy. They got one of the big ones, though. Oh, yeah. They figure between five and 600,000 Cambodians are killed in these like carpet bombing raids. They take out like entire sections of jungle and little villages and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, this happens over like five to eight years, right? Wow. When they finally kind of go in there looking for these like Vietnamese bases, they don't really find anything. Shocking. Yeah, so there's this theory that kind of comes to light that maybe the Vietnamese were never really in Cambodia in the first place. The U.S. just had extra bombs that were piling up. you got to spend your budget. Yeah. Next year's budget. You know, teacher thing. I'm sure they believed that the Vietnamese were there. They just didn't actually wait for evidence or intelligence or somebody to say, hey, that's where it is. Bomb that specific part. They're in the jungle somewhere. Go find them. We don't know where exactly where. So we're going to drop enough bombs. That we will hit them no matter that what. That there'll be no more trees for them to hide behind. Right. Or or even, say, contact Ca- the Cambodian government and go, look, uh, we're pretty sure the Vietnamese are in your country and we want to bomb them. Can you guys get rid of them so we don't have to do that? At least try talking to people. Well, I think they did. Oh. I think they did. I think the Cambodian government was in favor of helping the Americans because, you know, they needed U.S. aid and weapons to, like, quell their own insurrections and whatnot Mm. until the U.S. started dropping so many bombs and they were killing everybody. And then they had a falling out. Right. I would feel the same way. Yeah. Yeah. They were kind of like the Cambodians were like, well, we don't have any Vietnamese. And the Americans are like, we're pretty sure you do. Well, we'll go looking for them. Hey, we can't find any. Now they're there. We're going to bomb them. And so it kind of ruined Cambodian-U.S. relations. Yeah. The other trickle-down effect. Take note, politicians. The other trickle-down effect or build-up effect was that the populace, the people in the countryside, started Are missing to, all their legs. They started to side with the most radical factions who were saying, listen, your government isn't helping you. Yeah, right. The Americans aren't helping you. They're bombing you into the Stone Age. And the Khmer Rouge went from a fringe faction of like 5,000 guerrillas to their peak where they eventually took over. They had over 100,000 militiamen. The numbers are fuzzy. I mean, even when they talk about the number of victims of the the Khmer Rouge form of government, if you can call it that, the range is incredible because there's no record keeping. It's not. It wasn't. A, it wasn't. It a, goes from there was one Khmer Rouge guy to there was twenty five billion. Yeah, I never read that they had much more than that hundred thousand man army range. So. Okay. That is sort of like your top end. John M. Del Vecchio asserted that the communist forces had the American equivalent of four million armed and organized troops overrun two thirds of the country prior to any American bombing. So we've got some people saying that the American bombing is what caused the popularity of the Khmer Rouge uh-huh. and, and swelled their ranks. And then we have this author, uh, John M. Del Vecchio, who points out that they had four million troops before the bombing even started and had overrun two-thirds of the country. Okay, well, so, the problem is is that Cambodia's entire population is eight million. Yeah. So to claim that one out of every two Cambodian men, women, and children were in the Khmer Rouge army seems a bit of a stretch. It does, yeah. Well, it does say American equivalent of 4 million armed and organized troops. I don't know what he means by that. <laughs> What's the... Is that an exchange rate? Like, yeah. yeah. No, Each one of us is worth a million of you. So you've got four guys. <laughs> yeah. That's right. So maybe they had 100,000 Cambodians. <laughs> maybe that number is really correct. It's possible. This is one of the things that kind of led to the popularity of the Khmer Rouge sure. rising amongst the people and actually swelling the ranks. To getting them to a position where they could actually challenge the monarchy, the, the standing government. Mm-hmm. So now that we're getting into the early 70s, right, where the Khmer Rouge are a force to be reckoned with. 
They're well supplied and well armed from the Chinese, and they're kind of building their philosophy. As early as 1971, they were already like kind of liberating cities, like taking cities over, saying, oh, you're now under our control, leaving like, you know, a communist overseer, and then moving on to attack other government forces and, you know, engaging in the combat. They would come back to these towns that had been freed from monarchical control and were shocked to discover that many of their urban liberated areas had shaken off their socialist message already and gone back to their old ways. Oh, even with like, we were just here. Overseer. Yeah, exactly. And they're like, wait a minute. In fact, there's a quote, uh, a 1973 Pol Pot quote, which says, if the result of so many sacrifices is that the capitalists remain in control, what's the point of the revolution? Yeah, you should just give mm -hmm. up and go back to live with the hillbillies. They went a different direction with it. They went, let's make them all hillbillies. We're going back to that, let's create a hillbilly okay. society. Yeah. Between 1971 and 1973, it seems to be where they formulated this idea that cities in and of themselves were kind of counter-revolutionary. Yeah, because you're not self-sufficient when you live in a city. You have yeah. to you have to bring in food that somebody else has made for you. The people in the cities make more money than the farmers who are providing the thing that allows them to live. That's right. Uh, I think Pol Pot just hated murals, <laughs> and I'm with him. That was one of the things that I found really interesting about this is pretty much every other dictator of the 20th century, especially communist dictators, really have this cult of personality machine working behind the mm -hmm. scenes. And he didn't really do that. He was kind of paranoid. Right. One of the theories is the reason he changed his name was so that no one would know who he was. And then they actually had like code names. Like he was brother number one. Mm -hmm. His second command was brother number two. They're very creative. Yeah. And like the, the minister of defense was like brother number five. And the minister of like social services was sister number three. And okay. He didn't actually spread his image nearly as far and as wide as most of the leaders in the same position from around the world had done. Right. In fact, there's a, there's a funny little anecdote from 1978. Uh, one day in 1978, a poster bearing Pol Pot's image was put up in a communal mess hall in Kampong Tom. Only upon seeing the poster did his brother, Suang Sar, learn who was running the country. Terrified of being identified as someone who knew too much about his brother, Suang kept quiet about his relationship to the ruler. Wow. Nice. He was afraid that because his brother was so paranoid and kept it from the public right. notice for so long who exactly he was, if he made it known that he was related to him, that they might. Suffice to say, uh, by 1975, they got to the point where they had actually, the uh, the standing government, you know, surrendered. 1975. They couldn't take it anymore. They couldn't. They couldn't Too much it for anymore. it. The communists now had the bigger army and they were fighting more effectively and they had have, have actually taken over the entire country to the point where Phnom Penh was the last holdout. Okay. Pol Pot called his new, his new regime year zero. When they took over. Right, of mm -hmm. course. They, they abolished the calendar. They went back yeah. to the beginning Forget of time. Forget everything you've learned. Forget everything that happened before now. This is new dawn. It was all a precursor yeah. to this glorious new age. And then they did the craziest thing that I may have ever heard in my entire life. Mm -hmm. And they forced every single citizen in the entire country out of the cities. Phnom Penh at the time had a population of 2 million. So one quarter of the entire country's population okay. was, was in that city. Not anymore. And in the course of like three days, like they emptied the city trudge, of Phnom Penh trudge, trudge, of trudge, two million trudge, people. Trudge, trudge, yeah. trudge. So you're a barista working at, at the equivalent of Starbucks. At uh, Cambucks. And all of a sudden, these guys with the, the black jumpsuits and the red sashes yeah. come along with guns and go, you're moving out to the fields and you're going to yeah. be a farmer we got for a the rice rest patty. of your life. We got a rice paddy with your name on it. Get and moving. if we don't, you're going to make it. Yeah, you're going to create a rice paddy for you to live in. We're going to use your body to fertilize the rice. Yeah. The people who were the biggest threat to the regime, as identified by Pol Pot, were people who could speak foreign languages, uh, people who had educations, people who, who lived in cities. Those elitist bastards. How dare they know things? In, fact, in 1976, they actually created three official classifications of citizen. Okay. You could be a full rights people. Mm -hmm. That sounds like a good one. That does sound I, good. I think so. Yeah. Uh -huh. I enjoy full rights whenever possible. You could be a candidate. Mm. Candidate for what? I'm not sure. For, for, for full, full rights. rights. Okay. Yes. All right. Uh, maybe a candidate to continue living. That too. <laughs> I, I would expect that would be one of the rights. A life candidate. And then the third category, they call them depositees. 
Depositees. As in, they were taken from a city and deposited in the country. Okay. Depositee sounds like a really polite way of saying shit. Like I... (laughs) The depositee is the thing that I deposited in the toilet. <laughs> I'm you sure being the depositor. That was not lost on communist leadership. Yeah. Uh, depositees were basically marked for destruction. Okay. Right. Uh, their rations were reduced to two bowls of rice soup per day. And the, uh, they, the new people, they were also, that was a nickname for them. Babies? The new people. <laughs> No, uh, depositees were also considered new people. Okay. Because they went from being, you know, these capitalist running dogs in the city, you know, engaged in marketplace right. activity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which weren't people. Yeah, those aren't people. Those are capitalists. So they, they were they were re- Making redefined. art or operating radios. Yeah, and new people weren't actually Which allowed. Which he failed at learning how to do. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, why, that's why I hated them so much. Uh, they weren't allowed to take place in any of the upcoming elections in spite of the new constitution, which quite explicitly denoted universal suffrage. There was a – so Pol Pot had a constitution? Yeah, but I'm not 100% sure much of it was followed it was or – Paid attention to. It was or written in branches on the ground. Not, not was changed at a moment's notice. Probably enforced with some pretty specific definitions. Yeah. You know, every all people get to vote. get to vote. Well, but you're not people, precisely, or you're new people, or you're new people that yeah. you don't count as full people. Yes. Yeah. yeah. There's you a lot of asterisks beside a lot of words. Well, it's a lot like this constitution. Let's face it, it's a lot of what's going on in America right now. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Everybody's free to do exactly what the Bible says, or what Walmart says. Or what this right-wing politician says about who is allowed to be married and who's not. Cambodia is actually – was a quite a multicultural country. Sure. There were a lot of ethnic Chinese there, a lot of ethnic Vietnamese, and uh, it pretty much wiped them out. Like their populations from hundreds of thousands to a fraction of that. They were 99 100s? <laughs> Three-quarters of them were, were wiped out in, in less than four years. So it's a – but then again, he, he took a pretty big chunk of the entire country's population when it was all said and done. Uh, wasn't it? Uh, two- well, this is where these, the, we get these really wide-ranging estimates on right. how many people died under his regime. They didn't have a very good census at the time. You well, know, if you, you also think about it. Just over time, people will die. Like, since Harper has gained his full majority in Canada, 100,000 people have died. Just from old age and car accidents and things like that. Yeah, you can't exactly say a hundred thousand people died in the Harper regime. Yeah, right. I can. <laughs> now it's not that Pol Pot wasn't sending people off to die in these work farms and having them butchered. And I mean that's obviously true. But when you start adding them up, which numbers do you include? Well, I guess it depends if you're saying just died or died from being shot. Right. Or well, died or, from being or macheted to, or being worked to death yeah. or. Yeah, being starved or whatever. Yeah. Well, they because they've they've dug up like twenty thousand mass grave sites mm-hmm. around the country. They sort of they estimate that thirty to fifty percent of the bodies that they found in these mass graves were um, were executed. Okay, so either hacked yeah. to pieces or right. beaten to death or shot or, or whatever, had a plastic right? bag put over their head. Precisely. Yeah, those I would definitely count as <laughs> murdered by the regime. Yeah. these are those are legitimate numbers. I don't want anybody to think I'm making excuses for this guy. So that's thirty to fifty yeah. percent of the bodies that they found. They know for sure were executed. Yeah, even if you go at the very low end of the estimate, this guy is a horrible person. If he was more industrialized, right, he could have hit Hitler numbers. Yeah, if he had decided technology was important as well as crushing everybody, then he would have the technology to crush more people. Yeah, well, this is the great part about the year zero part, too. He's driving everybody out of the cities. He also decides that technology is a threat to the regime. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When other the, other the next regimes came in, they would find like giant machine graveyards where they'd taken all these oh, cars wow. and burnt them and taken all the refrigerators and stoves and destroyed them. And it's just like twisted and bizarre and crazy how exactly is me having a refrigerator going to undermine my it's a dangerous idea my 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 communist ideals it's like colored chalk <laughs> i'll tell you why okay it's, it's because it allows you to store food which means you don't have to constantly be making food so that you forget what it means to be a subsistence level farmer so i a pop quiz Okay. Okay. Sure. The nuttiest infringements, which were punishable by death. Oh. Oh. 
Uh, this is the do not do's. This is definitely a do not do. Okay. If you do any one of these things, you can be, you could be executed you under will, the Pol Pot regime. You are a depositee. I'll give you, I'll, I'll start us off. Okay. Not working hard enough. Sure. Not working hard enough. In I spite would of the be fact, executed immediately. <laughs> probably, seeing as how 30 to 50% of the people in mass graves were executed, probably 50 to 60% were worked to death or right. starved to death right. in the fields. I don't so, even know if it's possible for me to be worked to death. That's how lazy I am. I think is, they would just kill me because they would be trying to work me to death and I'd just be like, oh, I just can't do it. This is this is one of those catch-22s, right? If you work hard enough, you might die. If you don't work hard enough, you we'll probably die. kill you. <laughs> yeah. You got to work just that right amount. I, you gotta, that's so, a razor's edge. So man. that's kind of our, it's kind of our lesser of two evils then. Yeah. <laughs> do okay. you do you work yourself to death or do you let them kill you for not work? I would go full on fuck it. Just go ahead shoot me. Why am I going to suffer for months? Then then I'll die. I'll just let you kill me. There yeah. we go. That's my lesser of two evils. That's a very impromptu lesser of two evils and I don't think you're going to get a lot of disagreement around no. this table, Joe. Like, this is why it won't be an official lesser of two evils. Da, 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 da. The <laughs> shortest lesser of two evils in caustic soda history. <laughs> uh, anybody have any uh, any random guesses I'm on what else suggest, might be on this list? I'm going to suggest hoarding food. Collecting or stealing food for personal consumption. At nice. that. Right out of the gate. How about uh, speaking ill of the glorious leader? This is kind of my nutty list. So oh, counter-revolutionary okay, okay. thoughts is sort of like probably number one. <laughs> I mean... Yeah. Uh, okay, so nutty. Cheeseburgers. <laughs> no, no foreign foods allowed. Complaining about living conditions. Oh, there we go. Yeah, man, I could go for a cheeseburger. You will die. <laughs> yeah, being standing up. I don't like sleeping in this pile of mud. <laughs> Kapow, traitor! Uh, and you say you're a communist. There are kids in America dreaming of a pile of mud to sleep in. Is that true? Shut up. How about this one? Engaging in sexual relations. What? Hey, how what? do you get more communists? Yeah, I didn't really get this one either, but you could be executed for sex. This sounds like a completely self-correcting regime. Not without <laughs> not without horrible pain and yes, suffering. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's still terrible. But but it can if only you, last one generation. If you're one of those people who only goes, look, let Cambodia deal with Cambodia as long as they don't bother us, we'll deal with it. Oh, it seems like a problem. Wait a minute. They're outlawing technology, they're killing themselves, and they're not having sex with anybody? Yeah, okay, give it a generation. Actually, that harkens to my quotable quotes section where I got a Kissinger. Why should we flagellate ourselves for what the Cambodians did to each other? Oh, What a caring individual. (laughs) He's so compassionate. That's the word everybody used to describe Kissinger, right? Totally. Compassionate. Wearing jewelry was punishable by death. Sure. By death. So you couldn't have sex with people and you couldn't even wear a wedding ring. To let people know. Well, they abolished families, were... actually. All the children were taken into uh, communal living and raised by, by uh, communist teachers, t- teaching them about okay. the revolution. And no watches. In fact, so you don't even know what time it is. In fact, the children were the most effective uh, denunciators because they were encouraged to spy against sure. their former families and others. We saw some of this in the killing fields when and we they, watched it. And they had nothing to forget. Yeah, from, that's right. From before year zero, they were right. they were uncorrupted by the society pre year zero. That's right. They're Definitely. held up as ideals yeah. of the uh, the new regime. Yeah. Well, that and and like children are kind of sociopaths, right? Like they don't have <laughs> they, they haven't sure like are. developed the like little emotional sort of like state. They don't yeah. they're not like invested in they people. They have no empathy. If you take them away from your fam from their families and like stick them in a room with other children and tell them, hey, you know, finger non good communists, and this is what a non good communist is. Anybody who is Complaining about living conditions, not working hard enough, wearing jewelry, grieving over the loss of relatives or friends, then, uh, you know, I mean, there's going to be a lot of finger pointing going on because I'm guessing there were going to be a handful of people doing one of these many things. Interested to know what the was there any sexism any different? Not that I could tell. There's a there's a website and a program uh, put on by Yale University called the Cambodian Genocide Program. And uh, they got all the photos from one of the interrogation sites that's nicknamed S21. They'd converted a, an old high school uh, and they put up these rudimentary brick facades, like these little brick cells. And they stuck, they jammed all these political prisoners in there and then tortured them until they confessed that they weren't good communists and they would execute them. Uh, and uh, every, before they executed anybody, they took a photo of them. There's like 
so five or six thousand of these photos, and they're all posted on this website in the hopes of maybe identifying some of these people, okay. right? Uh, which is a project under the Genocide Studies Program at Yale University. Hmm. Imagine – I didn't realize there was enough genocide in the course of human history to require a I think it's a good reach-out point for a guest. Uh, but ha- Have you experienced genocide? Give us a call. If you go and look at this website and take yeah. a look at some of these pictures – there's no discrimination involved. Right. Like they have pictures of like five-year-old children, women who are like, you know, obviously had been beaten mercilessly right, right before getting their picture taken. Like, but it's like half and half, male, female kind of a thing. There there doesn't seem to be any rhyme nor reason for who's getting their picture taken and about to be summarily executed. Okay. Like it's the dozens and dozens and dozens of little children's photos that I looked at that's by far the most disconcerting. Because mm-hmm. you're like – what could an eight-year-old have done? I guess they probably just got denounced by one of the other eight-year-olds in the class, right? Yeah. right? It's like, oh, wait. He's a wrong thinker. Billy said, oh, my God. Or Billy said, I miss my mom. Yeah. Yeah. There, I think S21 executed somewhere in the range of 20,000 people at that facility alone. There were hundreds of them around the country. But that's one of the more infamous ones because they were such you know, diligent document keepers. Only seven people who were ever interred at S21 – left the facility alive. But cameras are verboten. Oh, yeah. Well, I guess for, for uh, recording the executions of uh, bad communists, it was uh, cameras were allowed. Well, yes. And guns. Cameras and guns. Oh, yeah. no, There was definitely no, no shortage no ta- of guns. No taboo on the technology of rifles. Of, of firearms. Right. Yeah. Well, it's, it's just an instrument of revolution. Right? It doesn't count as technology. In fact, S21 has been turned into a genocide museum. That you can actually go visit oh, now. Road trip. <laughs> when I was in Munich, I went to Dachau, and uh, it's you know a Holocaust museum, mm-hmm. and it's one of the most powerful experiences I've ever had in my entire life. I think everybody should go, not just because of seeing, in a forced march, <laughs> not just to see like you know all the horrible things that were committed there, but the actual the museum. Most of it deals with how it was possible for this to come to pass, right? And they talk about pre-World War II Germany. And we talked and, about this on the Hitler episode. Exactly, and how the German... Uh, just re- Go back and listen to Hitler and, and, and talk about this. And I think that you can uh, see online, maybe we'll post this on the website, causticsodapodcast.com. There's a series of murals outlining the uh, regular torture techniques oh. that they performed uh, on their victims at S21, uh, many of which included... Uh, having their arms tied behind their backs and raising them by their their bound arms until their shoulders Ooh. dislocated, unpleasant. Yeah, uh, removing toenails with pliers, unpleasant. Suffocating prisoners repeatedly, unpleasant. Occasionally pleasant. I mean, there are people who do that for fun, but yeah, mostly Mike, unpleasant. Michael Hutchins went a little too far with that one. Yeah, uh, and skinning a person while alive. Very unpleasant. Uh, yeah, I'm going to guess. I don't For have any experience, involved. but I'm going to guess that's unpleasant. How far into the skinning process would you get before you confessed? When they opened up the toolbox? <laughs> yeah. What do, you, what do you want me to confess to? Yeah. I mean, again, lesser two evils. Skinned until you die or confess to something you didn't do and then get killed quickly. Look, you yeah. know, everybody I know is going to know that I'm lying, but who cares? I'm dead. I guess at one point in time, did everybody who was there realize that they were all going to die? Yeah. Was there any point that they gave up hope? Well, I'm you, thinking the eight-year-olds. I'm thinking the eight-year-olds probably held out hope right to the very end. Or just didn't know any better. But yeah, I mean, you could call that a form of hope. <laughs> just not knowing how screwed you are. I have a sign that was at S21. All the rules and regulations of being interred at S21. They're worded very curiously. Yeah. <laughs> it, it seems like just a really angry, bitter person in power yeah yeah writing these somebody things. who their entire life had never had any power and now yeah. flexing the muscle and i was like i have power so do what i say this is it, it will obviously we'll put this picture up on the website yep i liked it number two the second part is you are strictly prohibited to contest me i like number three don't be a fool for you are a chap who dared to thwart the revolution uh you must immediately answer my questions without wasting time to reflect yeah don't think so don't about things. think things just react while getting lashes or electrification, you must not cry at all. Oh. Or you'll Maybe get more, more lashes, lashes and more electrification. electrification. <laughs> yeah. Don't make pretexts about Kampuchea in order to hide your jaw of traitor. I'm thinking that's an awkward translation. What's Kampuchea? When uh, Pol Pot took over, he renamed the country. No longer Cambodia. Oh. It's now Kampuchea. All right. 
That's so hillbilly that was, talk. That was part of the the year zero thing. It's okay. Like, well, when you yeah, when you hear about his reaction to all the deaths, like he seems to think he's not responsible, and that it was horrible. Like in 1995, he gave an interview to a um, journalist. Yeah, uh, I, he uh, he has this really great double speak that he does, where he he says one thing and then kind of counters it immediately after that. Yeah, this is one of my personal favorites. I was responsible for everything, so I accept responsibility and blame. But show me, comrade, one document proving that I was personally responsible for any deaths. I was responsible, but I wasn't responsible. Yeah. Yeah. Although I think what he means there is, look, I'm responsible for everything that happened, but I never actually killed somebody myself. Right. I never when he says personally responsible, I think what he means is I never shot anybody in the face. Yeah, but he might have said, hey, guess what? Wearing jewelry is punishable by death. Yeah, so you should kill it. go out and kill all the people who wear yeah. jewelry. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But he, and, never, he never killed any of those people. But he himself. seems to think that that's okay. Like making declarations that end up getting people killed is somehow not evil. That's, yeah. But but hey, well, I'm not evil. I never killed anybody myself. Yeah, I just I'm, ordered a whole bunch of evil things. That's what I get from that quote, and that's terrible. In this interview, he's in his in his early 70s okay. at this point, and mm-hmm. he throws out the whole, look at me now. Do you think I am I a violent person? No. So far as my conscience and my mission were concerned, there was no problem. I never did any violence. Right. Like as though that makes it okay. Do I look like a violent person? No, so I couldn't possibly be violent. I'm a jovial old man. It's like, yeah, but you're giving this interview in 1995, 20 years after you started doing all these terrible things. And maybe you're jovial now because you got like a heart condition or whatever. And laughter is the best medicine and whatnot. Or maybe you really, maybe you're a sociopath and you really enjoyed ordering people to the deaths. And so that's why you're so jolly because you killed millions of people. <laughs> millions of people died and I'm still alive. Yeah. Nobody who's 70 years old could be evil. Whoever wishes to blame or attack me is entitled to do so. I regret I didn't have enough experience to totally control the movement. On the other hand, with our constant struggle, this had to be done together with others in the communist world to stop Cambodia from becoming Vietnamese. So again, the old, like, give with one hand, take away with the other. It's the revolutionary equivalent of why is this country hitting itself? Yeah. Like, he's grabbing their hand and punching them in the face with it. And he's like, why are you hitting yourself, Cambodia? Why are you killing millions of people? I'm not doing it. You're hitting yourself. He's yeah. Cambodia's bully brother. <laughs> well, he's brother number one. There you go. But my favorite quote of them all is from his second wife. After his first wife went clinically insane. Who made that diagnosis? Yeah, they certainly didn't have any doctors who could make it. <laughs> his second wife is quoted as saying, in April of 1998, after his death, he was always a good husband. He tried his best to educate the children not to be traitors. <laughs> <laughs> that's all you can ask. That is the good mark. Yeah, that's that all is the mark of a good for. husband. Yeah. <laughs> a good husband and a father. Torn, Torn, your dad taught you not to be a traitor, right? That's so, true. He so was a can, good father. So you can mark him down as a good father. <laughs> okay, I've actually found some information about marriage and sex all right, uh, via honest. the Khmer Rouge. Uh, in all sectors of the country, this is from uh, intlawgirls.com. Uh, I'll try and get a link up on the website. In all sectors of the country, the Khmer Rouge forced couples to marry, sometimes in group ceremonies involving 20 to 60 couples. Ooh, that's fun. Yeah. That sounds fun. To sounds ensure festive. that unions Romantic. adhered to official policy and advanced the revolution. Sure. So our worry about there not being future communists was uh, unfounded. Throwing rice in people's hair is just a waste. They'll just say, you and you would be good together. You'll make strong children. You're married now. Make good communist babies. But what about sexual assault and that sort of thing? They had laws against rape. However, the leaders of the Khmer Rouge seemed to use it as one of the crimes uh, that they would inflict on people to, quote, implement the common purpose. More of a punishment. That's what it seems like from this article I've got. I'll, I'll put a link up so people can read it. It's quite a bit longer. So I think the only thing really to delve a little bit more in depth into is the, the term the killing fields, which is made famous by the movie. Uh, which, which movie was that? The Killing Fields. Even though there were lots of AK-47s, ammunition was not necessarily easy to come by. Mm. So they were encouraged to uh, for any executions to be performed without the use of bullets. Many executions were carried out using poison, spades, sharpened bamboo sticks, oh, yeah. iron bars. And in some cases, when it was a child that was being executed, 
They were killed by having their heads bashed against the trunks of Chankiri trees. Oh. Which I'm guessing is a tree native to Cambodia. This makes sense. Perhaps uh, spiky or bumpy. Y- you can't agriculturally grow bullets. True. But you can grow trees. And bamboo. Bamboo and grows very fast. Yeah. I remember also seeing in The Killing Fields, the movie, uh, a lot of asphyxiation by plastic bag. The rationale for most of the child executions was, in fact, due to the, if their parents were executed. And the rationale was to stop them from growing up and taking revenge for their parents' deaths. Right. Sure. Yeah, so that's very Greek tragedy, very Hamlet of them. It's, it's very stopping a Batman. Yeah. <laughs> it's, an, it's the anti-Batman policy. Mm-hmm. Communist regimes are a cowardly and superstitious lot. <laughs> I shall dress like a bat. Uh, so the killing fields is kind of a generalized term for all these like mass graves and like pits where bodies were dumped near mm. these like work sites. And they've excavated in excess of 20,000 of these sites. Uh, around Cambodia. It's not a big country. So they have 20,000 mass burial sites. Now, this is where the estimates come in, from 1.4 million to 2.5 million. Mm -hmm. If it's at the low end of that spectrum, that's a lot of people. Yeah. If it's at the high end of the spectrum, that's a shitload of people because the entire population of Cambodia, when Pol Pot took over, was about 8 million people. So- might have had either executed or worked to death or starved through malnutrition because the irony of taking all these city people and making them go work in the fields to grow their own food that they're going to live on when none of them actually knew how to grow anything mm-hmm. because they were like professionals mm-hmm. and, 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 and people who'd lived in the city their entire life. Bankers. Bankers and whatnot who then, okay, grow that rice and then you eat that rice to survive with maybe more people than we can actually support mm-hmm. uh, with the amount of land that we possess. Uh, so there's a lot of malnutrition and starvation that was going, that was, you know, intrinsic in that kind of policy. They must have been growing things other than rice, though. I remember seeing in the movie that the character Prawn, who was... Dith Prawn, yeah. He was sneaking into the cattle area to drink, you know, cut up the cattle and just a little bit so he could drink their blood. And he yeah. was, like, grabbing mm-hmm. lizards off the ground when he saw them and eating those. and All of which was probably punishable by death. Yeah, it really... I got the feeling that they wanted to keep him, his diet, protein low to break his will. That yeah. was the feeling I got. So uh, one of the best-known monuments to the Killing Fields is called Chung Ek. It's now a site of a Buddhist memorial to what happened there. While touring the site, it is common for bones and clothing to surface after heavy rainfalls due to the extremely Ooh. large number of bodies still buried in the area. Right. Yeah. Uh, it is not uncommon to run across bones or teeth of victims scattered on the surface as you tour the memorial park. And if you come across these, you're asked to notify the park officer or guide. Or just take it as a souvenir. Can you imagine being in a place that is so replete with human bones, a heavy, heavy rainfall, rainfall they up. will like bubble to the surface? Even though this, this regime is gone how it must have completely screwed up every single person in the country. Right. Like, there's all these kids who didn't get raised by their parents. They got raised, brainwashed into believing, you know, all this crazy stuff. And even if they're over it, they're still messed up. Yeah. It's still a country of even people. Even at the, at the end of the whole experience, it's not like, yeah. well, case closed, everything's back to it's normal. It's not like people going, oh, whew, we're finally back to normal. They've raised people and, and brainwashed them all into this. Yeah. So you're going to have a whole country of just messed up people. As well, the economy is, is like never really truly recovered. Mm-hmm. And they figure primarily due to the fact that the Khmer Rouge executed pretty much everyone who ever had an education in the history of Cambodia. So right? perhaps Pol Pot is one of the most successful evil dudes in history. To say that Cambodia got boned by the Pol Pot government. America's got, what, 300 million people. If 20% of them died, that would be 60 million. Yeah, between 20 and 25% of them died. You know, all of a sudden, all Americans are pushed out of their cities. Into the countryside. And then 60 million of them. 60 to 75 million of them died. Get worked to death. Yeah, starved. Killed by bags. And how large area-wise? You mean physically large? How physically large? It's about half the size of Texas. Cambodia. So it's it's sizable. But um, it's the 88th largest country in the world. And there's like, what, like 169 countries? So it's like right smack dab in the middle. 236. Jesus. Oh, they count the Vatican. The Vatican City being the smallest. (laughs) One thing we haven't discussed is how it all ended. 
How did Pol Pot get out? Oh, okay. That's a good point. Because I have no idea how that happened. Well, in 1979, he decided that he needed to uh, get into a fight with the Vietnamese communists. Okay. Because uh, he was so vehemently anti-Vietnamese, and uh, he was afraid that... the one, one of the reasons that he aligned with the Chinese communists instead of the Vietnamese communists was that he was just afraid that they would become kind of a puppet government of the Vietnamese. Hmm. So he engaged in a Vietnam bunch of... Vietnam had its shit together? Yeah, well, by 1979, the U.S. left in 73, right? Okay. So the Vietnamese have been kind of running the show for a while. And they're a much larger country than Cambodia is. So their military was, you know, far more advanced, better trained, bigger, like okay. everything. So he started a bunch of border skirmishes, and uh, the Vietnamese went, oh, God, screw this guy. This guy. He's been a thorn in our side since the 60s. We're going to just march in and depose him, which is exactly what they did. They, How yeah. long did that take? Dude. Not very long. They must have been like, dude, we just pushed the Americans out of our country, <laughs> and we've got a bunch of troops who are used to fighting, Yeah, and we haven't shut down all our factories and cities that we have, make we amazing have, technological weapons. We have weapons. this thing called bullets. Yeah. Yeah. We don't have to grow bamboo bullets. So it did not take very long, and uh, they pretty much moved right into Phnom Penh. He ran into the hillsides, went back to his roots, right? Went back to live with the hillbillies. Yeah. The Vietnamese put in a communist government sympathetic to Vietnam. Okay. So the interesting trickle-down effect of this was the U.S. government actually started funding the Khmer Rouge to fight against the Vietnamese-backed oh, government no. in Phnom Penh. How did that go over? Uh, well, they did it in secret, and they would what they would do is they would give money to aid agencies and tell them to give it to the Khmer Rouge. Mm -hmm. So the Khmer Rouge would become recipients of, like, foreign food aid from overseas and whatnot. But they weren't supplying them bullets. They were in league with the Chinese to supply them arms and bullets. Okay. Like, money and arms and bullets was coming from China for them. Okay. Uh, his stronghold was on the border with Thailand. He raised most of his money to keep his fight going by selling mineral rights to Thai business interests. Oh, okay. Even though he didn't really have any right to sell the mineral rights, but when you're kind of – you got all the guns in the world and you're like holding control over a region and no one else is going in there, you say, hey, you want to open that diamond mine? Give me a bunch of money and I'll, and I'll, I'll give it to you. All right. And they figure he raised like $200 million over the course of his like 15 years hiding in the jungles near Thailand through – through uh, um, selling a lot of these rights. So how many times like was, or how long was Pol Pot hanging out in the jungle until he finally resurfaced? He was hanging out till 1995, performing like little guerrilla tactics in the right. whole nine yards. Uh, in 1996, uh, some, one of his major generals leaves and takes a bunch of their, his army with him. Oh, okay. So they split into Splinter two group. factions, yeah. right? And then in 19, so then his paranoia comes to like an all-time high. Because in 1997, he becomes convinced that Son Sen, his long-standing minister of defense and friend for over 40 years, he becomes convinced that he's collaborating with the Cambodian government, and he orders his execution and murders mm. him, his wife, and all of his children. All 11 members of the guy's family. Yeah, were murdered by Pol Pot's That's man. the anti-Batman policy. So that creates a split between Pol Pot and Tab Mok, the Khmer Rouge military commander and brother number five. And on the 25th of July, 1997, a People's Tribunal sentences Pol Pot to life imprisonment, and they uh, put him under house arrest and take him. In the jungle? Is it a bamboo prison? Uh, this is actually where this interview takes place, like in this uh, – with the British journalist. Oh, where okay. Where he like, talks about all the mistakes he made. Yeah, there's a great you, – you can see it on YouTube, the uh, documentary about Pol Pot from uh, Evil Men in History. I'll embed that on the, the post for this as well. Nice. And they have parts of that interview and specifically that – reporter talking about getting in to interview him and talk to him. Yeah. Sounds interesting. The Khmer Rouge are actually in negotiations with the Cambodian government to turn Pol Pot over to him. And Pol Pot hears about this and then dies of heart failure the same day. So there's, there's this longstanding theory that he actually like killed himself or poisoned himself or something like that to avoid being carted off and you know, becoming subject of a, a human rights tribunal. Okay. Uh, and despite the Cambodian government's request to inspect Pol Pot's body, Tamok cremated it only a few days later. He cremated his body on a pyre of old car tires beside a oh, village latrine. Dinky. Oh, wow. <laughs> and that fu that funeral pyre still burns to this day. <laughs> Take that, yeah, Pol Pot. That's that's the Cambodian version of the, the eternal, eternal flame. flame. Call me irresponsible. Call me. Unreliable, throw in, undependable too. Do 
Well, I'm not too clever, I just adore you Call me unpredictable, tell me I'm impractical, rainbows I'm inclined to pursue Call me irresponsible, yes I I'm inclined to pursue You go ahead and call me Irresponsible I admit I'm unreliable But it is undeniably true That I'm irresponsibly In the news, is this going to be about uh, the children raised by him during the revolution all going crazy and cloning him? Is it about the Brazil? Cambodian Batman? The, the, the boys of, of Phnom Penh or That's something? Right. There's a war crimes trial going on in Cambodia right now. Oh. Well, that was timely. Uh, it started actually in mid-November of 2011. How's it going so far? Well, they've uh, they've got... Five people on trial. We're going to give you guys 35 years, and then we're going to come get you for all that bad stuff you did. Nuon Che. They should have changed their name. <laughs> Nuon Che, who's 85. He was the Khmer Rouge's chief ide- ideologist, known as brother number two. Wow. Uh, Q Sampan, 80, the former head of state. Ayeng Sari, 86, the former foreign minister. See, none of these guys have alliteration. That's how they got caught. Yeah, exactly. And his... Ayang Seri's wife, Ayang Thirith, 79, Minister for Social Affairs, uh, but she was ruled unfit to stand trial because she has advanced Alzheimer's. But she still actually has to, uh, they had a ruling that she wasn't allowed to not sit in the trial, so they've got this, she actually has to attend and sit at the defendant's table. Uh, Suffice to say, in 2006, the Human Rights Tribunal was finally convened due to, like, massive international pressure in 2011 they're finally going to trial okay and they're not 100 sure how long the trial is going to take but they already have one conviction kang gook eve who was the commandant of the tool slang s21 torture center oh okay his nom de guerre was duke d-u-c-h right d-u-c-h the uh the french duke he was sentenced to 35 years in prison after being convicted last year on similar charges war crimes so they've got one down. They're going after four others. Uh, in fact, the prosecutor is trying to get charges levied against another group of five, but there's been some keen resistance from within the Cambodian government itself, and uh, they're being accused of like cover-ups and all the rest of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So I say, when you're, when you're sentencing 86-year-old people and 79-year-old women with Alzheimer's to 35 years in prison, it's kind of a hollow victory. Mm-hmm. Seeing as how the regime ended in 1979, it's now 2011, yeah. 22 years later. 30, 32, 32 years, years later. The process, which has so far cost $110 million, has been controversial to say the least, as allegations of corruption and government interference abound. Natch. Well, they're probably all going to get convicted, but, you know, I mean, it's probably going to be, oh, they're old and pathetic, put them under house arrest, you know, white-collar prison. Restrict their applesauce. On the beach. Yeah, restrict their applesauce. They should be forced to watch The Killing Fields over and over again. Ugh. Pop culture. The part that actually amazes me about The Killing Fields, the movie came out in 84, which mm-hmm. means that it was shot in late 82, 83 at the latest. Right. The Pol Pot government wasn't deposed until 79. Yeah. So the turnaround from the end of that regime to this movie getting commissioned is incredibly fast. And I think that that was one of the reasons why most of us around this table didn't like the movie so much. Well, we had no idea what was going on. It alludes to a lot of things that happened during the course of this stuff and doesn't actually deal directly with most of it. It kind of just shows it happening in the background. Right. And if I hadn't been studying it, if I hadn't done research, 
I wouldn't have known what the heck was happening, right? Yeah. So I think that this movie was served very well in 1984 right? due to the fact that every it was, must have been front page news for years. Everybody kind of had a grasp on the backstory mm-hmm. before the movie came out. And so you didn't need all these things to be explained away. But now, like 25 years later, it's a problem. I, I was almost angry that they were that they had taken this story about the horrible things and the millions of people who had died and turned it into this very personal storyline without mentioning at all how widespread it was. Yeah. Like the, the closest focus. you get is that you see a field of bodies. Yeah. But that's like right at the end. Yeah. And it's, it's happening to this one guy. And I'm like. Yeah. When you watch the the documentary that I'm going to link from YouTube, you see a much wider spread, more much more horrible thing going on. And, and even in the, it's very personal. Even in the film, they don't get until the killing feels like halfway through. Yeah, yeah. And the first half of the movie is mostly about this white guy. Yeah, a New York Times reporter uh, who was based in Cambodia and reporting on all the stuff that was going on in Southeast Asia at the time, and. His translator and coworker, yeah. Dith Pran. Yeah. It really is their story, and it's very personal, mm-hmm. and it focuses entirely on these two characters, and to the detriment, I think, of the overall story. I agree, one hundred percent. And it was kind of okay, yeah. up yeah. until that halfway point, and then it became interesting, that and it became things- personal in a much more successful level, yeah, because you can identify with just this basic plot of. This guy's in a fucked up situation. Yeah. And, you know, you don't have to, de- you're not dealing with the politics of it anymore. You're not trying to wrap your head around what this whole situation is in the wide picture. You're just focusing yeah. on this guy surviving. Like you're not yeah. trying to figure out what's base, going on. Yeah. It's a more base story. Yeah. And you care a lot more about this guy now. Yeah. You care much less about the white guy, Sidney Shanberg, throughout yeah. the first yeah. half that you. It's had to deal like, with the first half of the worried, film. I was never worried for his character's safety, safety at right. all. Yeah. It was he was always just worried about am I going to get the story? Yeah. He was kind uh, of a dick. Yeah. Like he's kind of an unsympathetic character. Kind and they of. had this and they Not had this totally. point in the film where Pran could have left. Yes. And he, the white guy, kind of, sort of, didn't really guilt him into it. But yeah. if he was doing the right thing, he would have said, get out. Yeah. And then later on, he had the opportunity to, you know, not leave Prawn there. Mm-hmm. And he did. He left him there, yeah. Yeah. I don't know how he could have gotten them out of those I, yeah, situations. Yeah, I don't know. At like that once, point, once, the, once they're in the, the well, French embassy, surrounded by the all Prawn these... made the decision troops. to stay in the danger zone when yeah. he had the opportunity. The white guy did not make the decision to stay in the danger zone when he had the opportunity. But I don't know what he could have done. Yeah. Right? Like At that was, point in time, his hands were tied. He has no weapons. He's in, stuck in the French embassy. Uh, the Khmer Rouge don't saying, want foreigners. Yeah, they, they want him out, and they want the Cambodians the, to stay. The Cambodians, especially of Chinese descent, which is what Dith Pran was, I believe. Mm-hmm. Again, I saw hopelessness for him. He had There's nothing he could do. He did only what he could do there. I certainly do join you in blaming him for not going, look, this is ridiculous. I'm not going to—he should have said, I'm not going to risk your life for a story. Yeah. After we watched that movie— one of the two you threw out there, there was too much whitey. That was me. Ah, that was and Torrin dark. agreed. I was yeah, like, I, wanted, I agree 100 too. I wanted less whitey. I wanted more Dith Pran. I wanted more of seeing the horrible things. I wanted. I want a movie now after seeing this and researching this that really shows the world how horrible this was. Yeah. The Killing Fields was showing us how horrible it was for these two, for this one white guy who just ended up feeling guilty, and then the one Cambodian guy who, granted, by the end of it, had a terrible time of it. And that, like Torrin said, that was the interesting part. I didn't care about white man's guilt. Weird. And also, uh, Hang Noor, who played... Yeah, this is an interesting behind-the-scenes thing. He actually was a survivor of the Killing Fields. In in fact, his story is kind of the mirror of the story of the character in the movie. Like, he was in the Killing Fields for four years as well. And he had a great story, and I love that they got a guy from there who'd experienced it, and I appreciated that, but he did not deserve to win Best Supporting Actor. No. Well, look at what a long and storied career he's had, all the roles that he's had since. That could be because of just that he's Cambodian and has a accent and Hollywood is done with him now. But he got an Oscar out of it. He's that also guy, a, he's right also place, a right doctor. Time. The other point that I had about the movie was, could he use some subtitles? Yes, there were some really heavy accents. And I'm not the kind of guy who, you know, if you're watching a movie about North American dude, and there's two foreigners talking in a foreign tongue, and you as the audience are not supposed to know what those 
Because they're putting you in the place yeah, of that in American. Place. That's observer. fine. I'm not yeah. saying all movies should have something. Mm-hmm. And there were lots the of points. There were lots of points where, especially after the the Khmer Rouge moved in, and yeah. all the foreign journalists are taken captive, and they're all yelling at each other in Cambodian. You're supposed to be in that moment. You're supposed to be sitting in the foreign journalist's shoes, right? Yeah. I don't have a problem with that. What I agree, I agree with you though. When the two Cambodians are speaking English to each other, and you're supposed to understand what they're saying. And, and the can't. accents are really <laughs> thick. There's some subtitles might have helped. Yeah, I agree. When I IMDb'd Pol Pot, a short film called Pol Pot's Birthday from 2004 came up. In 1985, Pol Pot is in a, is on a retreat in Cambodia's Battambang region. Four men hide in a darkened room as Pol Pot enters with his deputy, security chief, and general. The four men in hiding without conviction say surprise, and a banner says happy birthday. Cake and candles appear. The four sing happy birthday with spirit. The intern is given a piece of cake to taste for poison. Then all are served a slice. A few presents appear. The deputy emirates the next support pillow, a book about management, and a decorative stand reading, don't ask me, I just work here. The leader wants all to get back to work, but an aide brings one more gift. A puppy? A good gift? I know, it sounded really funny to me. Weird. Got it. I guess we'll have to post it on the website, causticsodepodcast.com. Caustic Soda was recorded by Mike Leeson inside a small room, slowly filling with water. To comment on our episodes, make a donation, as well as videos, pictures, links, and to download Caustic Soda ringtones, visit causticsodapodcast.com. Rate and review us on iTunes. Visit us on Facebook. Email questions and comments to info at causticsodapodcast.com. Suffice to say, it was, uh, suffice to say, so suffice to say, I think Pol Pot, suffice to say, uh, suffice to say, in 2006, they, suffice to say, when you're, when you're sentencing 